I'm going to be reading uh, for the sermon today from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. Uh, everyone can hear me, right? Okay. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. And thanks be to Alexis for reading that for us this morning. Uh, welcome again to the Table Church. Uh, we're in a, something called the Journey Through Scripture, and we finally made it to the New Testament. That's a big deal. We've spent the last 39 weeks in the Old Testament, and so uh, today is the test. No, I'm joking. Uh, there's no test today, uh, but let, Alexis just read for us a prayer of Jesus. And what I'm trying to present to us today from this most classic book in the Bible called Matthew, or the Gospel according to Matthew, is perhaps the greatest Christmas gift that you could get this year. And it's a prayer lesson. I'll say it again. Perhaps the greatest Christmas gift that you and I can get this year is a lesson in prayer. Lunatic. Liar. Or Lord. This is C.S. Lewis's trilemma. Remember this? Reading some of C.S. Lewis's work where he was presenting Jesus as either a lunatic. And in fact, if Jesus is a lunatic, you know, a madman, a crazy person, someone who believed that they were God, but truly they weren't. If Jesus is a lunatic, um, C.S. Lewis says you should get as far away from him as possible. Liar. Presenting that, well, perhaps uh, Jesus was just a liar. Um, actually knew that he wasn't God. And was deceiving his friends and his followers and people all over the world for millennia. Or Lord, C.S. Lewis asks us. Or Lord. And this is where Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew here in the New Testament, is beginning to unfold for us in these 28 chapters that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the promised Messiah and King that's been talked about, dreamed about, the Savior, this King who's coming not to take away power from you, but to deal with the oppressors, to deal with injustice. And his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. This is the shocking reality of what we celebrate during Christmas. Matthew uh, is doing this for us here. Well, as we give a narrative summary of each of these books of the Bible, I'm going to try to do so now before we come back to those verses that Alexis read for us. As a narrative summary, we have to ask, what time is it? Yeah, what time is it? We finally made it to the New Testament. There's a clue for you. We're no longer in B.C. Uh, we've been looking at all of those prophets who've been writing hundreds of years saying that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And now here for us in Matthew, we're in the first century. It's the time of Jesus and his disciples. And what you need to know about this is 
Rome had dominion over Israel. Yeah, they're in their own land, um, but Rome has dominion over Israel and almost all of Europe at that time, and North Africa and the Middle East. So the Roman Empire was at its greatest extent and uh, power, the height of its power around 116 AD. If you go back and look at uh, Roman history. So Emperor Caesar Augustus was in power. That's, you should Google that name. You should watch something on the Smithsonian Channel and get some background there. But he basically issued an order, which I don't think he could have known, um, would, would fulfill a biblical prophecy that was uh, prophesied 600 years before Caesar Augustus was even born. And you say, well, what did he, what did he decree? Well, Luke chapter 1 and other gospel writers, uh, Luke, sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus. Oh, so there we have a biblical author uh, talking about not only the historicity of Jesus being a real person come in real space and time, but another real person called Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Where, where is that Roman world? Israel. Most of Europe, Northern Africa, Mediterranean world at that time. And this fulfilled Micah chapter 5 verse 2. basically says there's going to be um, this census that's taken place. It's uh, beautiful here. Matthew's gospel, he's writing around the late 50s or uh, early 60s AD. And so... Uh, Jesus, you'll remember uh, in all of the Gospels, Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate. I'm just trying to alert us what time it is as Matthew's writing here, what the sort of cultural milieu they find themselves in. And so Jesus is brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, and uh, he thinks Jesus is innocent. In fact, he tells the crowd, I, you bring him up, him up on charges. I mean, he's performing miracles and he's feeding you know, the poor and, and, and helping people. I, I find him innocent. But uh, this Pilate gives in to the pressure from the Jewish leaders and ends up sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion. And then Jesus is led away by the Roman soldiers and crucified. So as we start traveling through this next, this book and 26 other books after this one, the entire New Testament, we need to understand this Roman Empire. Got, got to understand the cultural milieu in which these authors are writing into. And there are some present day Applications that we too can, uh, can, can take from this. Who is Matthew? Who is this uh, character? He's a tax collector. And basically, uh, this is a shorthand for saying he was Jewish but worked for the Romans and was viewed as a traitor. Hey, you're Jewish, what in the world? We're under their rule. Why are you working for them? Uh, there's corruption as a tax collector. You're sort of shaving some off the top and feeding it right back into the system of injustice. And so... There he is, and Jesus, as Jesus does, Jesus begins to call followers to himself. He begins to call disciples to himself, which Jesus is still doing, present day. And so Matthew is one of these uh, 12 original apostles, which means an eyewitness of Jesus, uh, that Jesus appointed, and Matthew himself appears within the book. So yes, Matthew's the writer, but he also appears in this book. And so for some 30 or 40 years, these apostles would have known Jesus' teaching. They would have memorized Jesus' teaching. They would have seen Jesus' life. And so now Matthew begins to collect 
all of those teachings and Jesus' life into a story format for us. So uh, if you look at all the other Gospels and you're comparing how does Matthew compare, this one's called the Jewish Gospel. Why would, he call it, why would scholars call this one the Jewish Gospel? Well, quite strategically, Matthew is trying to show the audience, and us as well, how uh, uniquely united Jesus is to the Old Testament. In fact, that's why in Matthew chapter 1, if you've read Matthew, you know, you know why Matthew does this, but he starts with the genealogy of Jesus. He's going to trace it all the way back to his ancestry. And so that's very, very important. Well, what's a gospel? You should probably ask that question as we get into these next few books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is a gospel? A uh, gospel is a counter-narrative to imperialistic Rome. We should know that first of all. That Caesar Augustus is not Lord. Caesar Augustus may have thought of himself, and certainly those there in Rome may have thought of, uh, but now there is another one, and this is what gospel means. It's a declaration of the reign of a king. Not Caesar Augustus, not modern-day politicians that we may have, or, or that may garnish a following, but King Jesus. It's a declaration. That's what gospel means. It's good news. And not just about my personal or even the world's sin, uh, but about the reign and rule of God over all things. And so the gospel is in every book of the Bible. It's not as though the gospel just now begins to show up in the Bible, in the New Testament. No. Uh, many people view the Bible in that way. It's just a random bunch of books all collected together with different stories all competing for our attention. And rather, the Bible is one story. And what's woven throughout like a beautiful tapestry is the gospel, meaning good news being proclaimed to us. Um, and so major themes that you find in this book, um, the big theme would be king and kingdom. If you're doing a study on this book and you were taking a test, like I did in seminary, you should know that this one is king and kingdom. And you could say a few more things, but at least if you were going in that direction, you'd, you'd be headed in the right direction. So king and kingdom. And I, I, I broke it down into this way, but it's the king's genealogy. That's what we see first there in the book of Matthew. And the gospel is very clear here. And we begin to realize as we look at this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that God isn't just concerned for Israel as a nation state. God loves Israel, but that Israel will include people from all nations. Therefore, Christianity is not a white religion. It's not an American religion. It's a global enterprise and movement of God that's been happening and even links back up to the original promises that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. It's a huge hyperlink there uh, for this genealogy. Uh, there's a person called Rahab that shows up in the genealogy. And if you know about Rahab, she's a prostitute. The Bible describes her as a prostitute. She's a real person. And so you start thinking, oh, dear God, is uh, Jesus' genealogy connected to this prostitute? Yes. And um, part of the reason for this and the, 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 the reason why Scripture showcases things like that because you might be thinking, that's a horrible marketing strategy. <laughs> Why would the Bible do such a thing? Show its own weaknesses. Um, and I think it's just to show us that no one can buy their way into God's favor. No one can work hard enough to, 
to please God and sort of work their way to heaven. That's, that's what religion does, but what Jesus and his kingdom and being king, he's laying out an incredibly um, different way than that. So if God can include Rahab into the family, there's hope for me. There's hope for us. God's grace will go to many links. The second thing is God's, I'm sorry, the king's power. No effect of the fall that's beyond his power and grace. Far as the curse is found is what one of our Christmas songs, uh, the lyrics there. Far as the curse is found, the curse of sin entering the world not only affects you and me, our city, but our world and even creation itself, but the king's power, we see him beginning to um, cast out demons from those that are possessed by demons. We see that in Matthew and the other gospel writers. Uh, we see uh, diseases being healed and even death itself being dealt with. Uh, Jesus um, telling Lazarus, his friend, to rise from the dead, and he does. And Jesus himself rises from the dead. Next is the king's kingdom. Jesus King begins to collect and train his disciples and uh, basically build and teach what a new kingdom of God looks like. And to remind us that the kingdom of this earth, the little kingdoms, power that we try to erect for ourselves or get behind and follow, all of those will fail us. God's kingdom is, is very different. We are citizens of a greater kingdom. We belong to a much larger story is what he's trying to get across to us. We are daughters. We are sons of a king that will never, ever fail us. Uh, The king's wisdom is seen beautifully here in Matthew chapter 5, where this is his Sermon on the Mount. You've probably read this. If you haven't read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I recommend reading that. It'd probably be a wonderful starting place. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 here, but he's he's just giving this expansive, uh, eloquent, Wisdom. Um, next is the king's mercy. We see this in the book of Matthew that, that God, being represented through the the both physical part of Jesus and the divine part of Jesus, is he's tender-hearted. He's very tender. He's compassionate. He's merciful. You and I don't know anyone like this. There's no one like this that that, that has all power and yet tender. And yet merciful. He's tenderhearted towards the poor, the hurting, the grieving, those suffering injustice, those longing for forgiveness and wondering, is there a God who's going to be compassionate with me? And then we, then we learn about the king's enemies. There's the oppressive religious leaders that we begin to meet. And these are some characters. We begin to meet these characters known as the Pharisees, and then there are other ones as well, Sadducees and so forth. We'll be covering them in the weeks coming up here. And hypocrites who have burdened people with legalism, which means if you do this, then God will do this for you. And if you do this and this and this and this and this, God will really bless you. That's legalism. And so he's teaching um, about grace, and so that gave him enemies. And then there's the king's commission. This, this book classically ends with Jesus' last words to his disciples. At least that's how Matthew records uh, his, his last words. And these 
followers of his, these, these disciples are sent out with good news. It's literally like enjoying such an amazing restaurant or a concert. And you and I, we just, we just can't keep our mouths shut about it. We were made in this way. There's even a friend of mine that works for a tech company here in San Francisco in the position. His position is called um, product evangelist. Uh, evangelism, it, it's in every sector. And evangel, meaning good news. That word's been hijacked. It means different things, but biblically it means there's good news. There's an announcement of a king that came. And so, how do we read Matthew, you may be asking. It's about a two-hour and 20-minute read, if you go in there and read it. Um, and uh, the, des- the design of it is there's an intro and a conclusion that basically f- is a f- it's a- acts like a frame around these five major sections of the book of Matthew. Each of those five major sections concluding with a famous teaching of Jesus. That's the design of it. And it's supposed to mirror, those five sections are supposed to mirror or parallel the Torah. Those five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so there's, there's a lot of, uh, this being a Jewish gospel, Matthew is brilliant in the way that he, as a writer, is designing this, this book for us. And so these people... Um, you know, Jesus as a teacher parallels these five books of Moses and he's basically saying that I'm going to fulfill the entire storyline of what you've been learning about God in the Torah. That God hates injustice, Jesus does too. God is for the, the widow and the oppressed and the poor and the foreigner and the immigrant, Jesus is too. And so one thing to look for as you read this is look closely to the type of people who reject Jesus, right, as you read through Matthew, look, look at the characters who end up rejecting Jesus. They're the religious people. They're the hypocrites. They're the prideful and the arrogant. And then compare and contrast those who end up following Jesus. It's usually the broken, the unimportant, and uh, the nobodies, the irreligious people. And so uh, now we're going to come full circle back to our sample passage, which Alexis uh, read for us at the very beginning. Uh, Perhaps the best Christmas gift we can get this year is a prayer lesson. That's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples here in Matthew chapter 6. He's giving his disciples and us, his followers, and even if we're not a follower yet, but thinking about the claims of Christ. It's a prayer lesson. It's a prayer lesson. Flannery O'Connor in her journal in 1946 said, Can anyone teach me how to pray? And George Herbert, great master poet. You all know this George Herbert. Great master poet, 16th and 17th century, has this poem called Prayer. Prayer one, like the number one. And in it, there's a hundred words with no verbs, and around two dozen word pictures of what prayer is. And this is what George Herbert says about prayer. It's beautiful. He says, prayer is God's breath in man returning to his birth. I like this one. Prayer is the soul in paraphrase. Prayer is Christ's side piercing spear. Prayer is heart 
in pilgrimage. Prayer is the soul's blood. I love that one. It's intense. It's raw. It's real. And then another one I'll throw out here to you. There's, it says prayer is something understood. Just like a poet. It just says it just like that. Prayer is something understood. Verse 9. And what I'm hoping to do here in this model prayer that Jesus has given us, this prayer lesson, is to take each line of it. So as, you, as you look at it with me and as we follow along here, I'm just going to take some of, the, some of the key words that show up here. And verse 9, Father and hallowed. Richard Rohr says, God is always bigger than the boxes we build for God, so we should not waste too much time protecting the boxes. But Christians like to have boxes for things with our doctrine and our Christianity. But in simplest terms, Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, is saying, yes, address God as Father. He is that. Yet, Scripture also refers to God in multiple places uh, in maternal terms. This may be new news for you. Let me cite some of those. I'll read a few of these. As a mother comforts her child, so I, God, comfort you and will be comforted over Jerusalem. That's Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has just born? Though she may forget, I, God, will not forget you. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Or in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Well, we read this, Father, as we're addressing God and as we're all learning how to pray here. And there was a time in my spiritual pilgrimage and my becoming a Christian, one of my friends who was discipling me noticed that when we gathered together to pray, I didn't really address God. I just dove right into asking God for things. And I want you to slow your prayers down a little bit, as I think Jesus is wanting us to do. And there's something about addressing God who He is. Simply calling God as Father. Now for some of us, this child, parent, uh, father type image, or even those words, can be very painful for some of us. Um, could make us feel very good or feel, feel very uh, bad about ourselves. And I think what's happening here uh, from Jesus is He's wanting us to understand that we belong. We belong. We're part of his family. That's what's so unique about this prayer. That God believes that about you. You are his daughter. You are his son. So as you're praying, as you, as you, if you're in that car and you're just so stressed, or you're finally taking a shower and you're finally getting some moments alone and your mind just racing and we start to pray. Sometimes you can just slow the prayer down and just meditate even on Father. Or the maternal, motherly aspects of God as well. With God's compassion. And we begin to pray very large things, by the way, when we learn how to pray to who God is. 
when our mind, our heart, and our spirit is shaped by embracing who this God is, it shapes how we pray and what we pray for. Our Father. Our Father. We are social beings that come to God together. We're not in this room alone. The church is not one person. In fact, the New Testament, there's this almost southern word that's used, y'all. It's Greek. You all. You'll see it in our English translations as being you. But if you study Greek, you'll understand the grammar there as it's plural. He's talking to a you all. He's talking to y'all. And so when we, he's saying, he's teaching us here how to pray. Our Father. God doesn't just belong to me. It's not just my, me and my relationship with God, but it's our Father. And our, our Father in heaven, boy, this is just a paradox of prayer. Paradox of prayer here is this powerful and personal divine and human. God is all of that, powerful but personal. Divine and human. Distinct and seeking union with us. And we tend to think of God as either Father, which is very relational, right? Or distant and in heaven, powerful, and yet God is both. Very rich prayer here. Our Father in heaven. Then this word hallowed, what in the world does this mean? Do we even use this word anymore? No. Hallowed. To hallow something means to treat something sacred. It's to literally to elevate it and to enjoy its supreme beauty. And Jesus is essentially saying here, you are what you hallow. You are what you hallow. Whatever you look to for its beauty, uh, whatever you lift up, whatever you find joy from, whatever you run to for fulfillment, that tells you a lot about your identity. And he's telling us that we ought to be hallowing God. We're not making God more powerful. We're not like literally lifting God up, but we are addressing God as powerful is to treat God as supremely beautiful. A God who comes to you through the person of Jesus and lays his life down for you and me and the world. And we typically hallow success, do we not? I mean, we're, we're Westerners. That's what we do. We hallow success, let's be honest, with ourselves. We get passed over for that promotion. And the other person whom we view as a schmuck, they got it. I got passed over. How did this happen uh, we get older and we realize that we're not going to even attain our big goals in life. Oh no. And we're crushed. Or we say things to ourselves like, I know I'm somebody if I attain success. That's just a little hint towards what you and I are hallowing at times. And Jesus is saying, you need to, you need to redirect. You, you need to return and hallow God. Verse 10, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we think after saying, Father, we get to ask for anything we want, right? Hey, I've addressed God as Father, and you know, we've, I've kind of buttered him up and uh, said some good things about him and made him feel good, and maybe he'll be in a good mood, and you know, we can, I can ask for that Ferrari or whatever it is that I'm looking for for this Christmas, truly. To say, thy kingdom come, we must also say, my kingdom go. 
I don't know how else to frame that or to say that, but, but, but in saying, thy kingdom come, O Lord. And that's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. And remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the very night that he would be betrayed. What does Jesus himself pray? Lord, Father, not my will, but your will be done. He's sweating drops of blood on that evening. He's in anguish. His soul is learning. He's, he's surrendering. Your will be done, O oh God. And if you're like me, normal, you end up wrestling with God quite a bit. And even if we don't say these words out loud, the soul is saying, no, but my will be done. It's better. I've thought through all the details. <laughs> um, I have a plan. You don't understand what I'm actually going to do. And we, we begin to tit for tat with God. And it's basically God's resume versus mine. And you know how this goes. My will be done. I've done my part. I'm not as bad as this person over there who's asking you for things. Notice me over here. I'm doing good things over here. Therefore, you must come through for me, God. And this part of Jesus' prayer, verse 10, is surrender. This is not popular. This is not popular Christmas talk right now. But Jesus cares enough about you and cares enough about me and his kingdom to say, surrender your will. Surrender your will. And remember that when we have a path of pain and suffering in life and things aren't turning out like we want it to, that's when I need to say, thy will be done. And yet everything in me wants to fight against it, try even harder. Tighten the screws, network more. And there's situations and crossroads coming up for me today as you as well, tomorrow, crossroads where we'll find ourselves, where we're either about to say to a scenario, my will be done, or we're about to say, God, your will be done. God, your will be done regarding my family, my career, this person that I want to be my spouse, or, 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 or this promotion that I need. And, I guess the question here that Jesus is subtly asking us is, are you ready to say, God, your will be done? God, your will be done. Where are those areas that you know need, you need to let go of, my will be done? Go and reflect on that. Go and have a very courageous meeting with yourself and with God and ask, are there areas in my life right now that I need to be saying, Lord, your will be done in this area. See, prayer is not this flashy stuff. It's not even this overly spiritual type stuff. Rather, it's go to the quiet place. Go to the silent place. Go to the solitude place. You're not trying to get noticed. You're just trying to learn to sit with God. Say it this way. It, 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 pray doesn't mean to say. To pray doesn't mean to say. We're talking about a lot of things to say. Jesus is even modeling for us what to say, but it ain't, it's not about what you say. It's about your heart. It's about the posture, the motive whereby one is saying what they're saying. Verse 11, moving on here. This word today, give us today our daily bread. Boy, this is the rhythm Jesus, if you've been a Christian for more than a second, 
you've been a follower of King Jesus for more than a second, it's about today. Give us today our daily bread. This notion that's not Western or American of you ought to be gaining more independence every day that goes by. You ought to be becoming more financially secure. You ought to be dependence, growing in dependence more and more and more on King Jesus. That's the Christian life. That's what's being modeled for us here in this prayer. St. Augustine writing a letter to a woman who asked him how to pray told this woman, before you can know how to pray, you must become a particular kind of person. You must account yourself desolate in this world. However great the prosperity of your lot may be, your mask has been taken off. You finally see, no matter how great your talents, gifts, and accomplishments, they can never bring you the lasting joy and peace that can only be found in Christ. God is enough. God is enough for me today. God will be enough for me tomorrow. This most famous classic text also in Matthew, chapter 6, verse 34, and everyone will agree with this one, by the way. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. You may have that verse memorized. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Don't don't be worried about tomorrow already like right now. Or yesterday right now. I mean, we're torn. We just pulled from yesterday and today or 10 years ago, 10 years from now. Give us today your daily bread. One day at a time to be sober. I have friends in recovery from addictions that have so much to teach us about this word today. They get it. They get it. Sobriety means living in today. I'm I'm, I'm gonna have freedom today. Guess what happens tomorrow? I need it again tomorrow. That's what Jesus is saying here. You need God's provision today, tomorrow. Give us. Give us, it says. It's not just a prayer of bread for me, but giving bread for all. This is a cry for social justice. But God, you would not only meet my needs, but you would meet the needs of people who are crying out for your help. And if you're comfortable listening to this and you think, you know what, I don't really need my daily bread. I'm doing just fine. How else can we say this? Grow up and begin to pray for those who do. Give us today our daily bread. Bread is sustenance and the the renewal of all things. Oh, there's so much more here. Can't even unpack all of this. Verse 12, forgive. It says, forgive us of our debts or it means sins. And by the way, whenever you sin against someone or they sin against you, it's as if there's been a financial um, accruing of a charge that just took place right there. That's right. And so whenever someone sins against you, per Matthew chapter 18, you can go to that person and you can choke it out of them, meaning get them to pay you back in financial terms. Don't do that, by the way. 
as Matthew 18 says, don't do that. But rather forgiveness comes when you yourself begin to realize how much you've been forgiven. That the God of the universe has forgiven you. That's why he says, forgive us of our debts, our sins, as we have also been forgiven. You have no power to forgive anyone else unless you know that God's forgiven you. At time we rationalize and minimize our sin, don't we? We say things like, I'm not just greedy, I'm just frugal. I'm not angry, I've just been unfairly treated. Or I'm not just uh, being critical, I'm just being honest with you. Or I'm not lustful, I just, you know, have a strong appetite. I'm not insensitive, I've just been under a lot of stress lately. We do, we minimize, we rationalize. And so this portion of this prayer here, this rhythmic conversation with God is a continual, and I mean on the repeat, confession of sin. Why is that? Because we keep sinning and we keep living in a world that's wrought with sin. And Jesus is saying, I've come for sinners. There's good news. We're right back to the gospel again. I've come for sinners. The only prayer I'm not going to answer is the one that's prayed in arrogance, saying, I don't need you. Jesus knows that you're a mess. He knows that I'm broken. He knows the brokenness. He knows the difficulty. He even knows the contradictions within ourselves. Jesus knows this already. And he knows that you know it too. Remember the story of a sinful woman caught in adultery in the passage from the gospel according to Luke? She's caught. Like in the very act. And Jesus ends up telling her that her sins are forgiven. And his enemies begin to say, Who is this that even forgives sins? Who is this? Who is this? This is the Jesus that's being presented. Praying to this one. Basking in, relishing the reality that you've been forgiven. When was the last time you did that? In your prayer life. Again, we're real prone to just ask, let me just start asking God for what, you know, what I need and what I see. And Take this afternoon and just meditate, think, be in silent prayer with God and just thank God for forgiveness, which empowers you to forgive others. And when we say forgiving others, it doesn't mean retrusting someone. Let me say that again. It does not necessarily mean retrusting someone who has hurt you. Right? We've been abused. We've been a victim. And so forgiveness is, uh, it means being open to a different future with that person, I think. God, I don't know what you're going to do in this relationship with this person. But I'm going to leave that to you. I, I release it to you, oh God, so that you can make space for, for, for whatever you're going to do here. That's because we, by God's grace and power, we begin to see God in that other person, even if it's very, very hard and challenging. And that's because we, even we ourselves, are the cracked, the cracked image of God, the broken image of God. 
Who might you need to forgive today? As you pray this prayer. Well, I'll probably pray that prayer again tomorrow and probably be asked the same question. Who do I need to forgive tomorrow? Now this same prayer uh, who Jesus is teaching us to pray is is the very prayer that, that he himself is praying on the cross. What does Jesus say on the cross? God, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, that's mysterious. That's deep. Jesus, catch it, catch it with me. Right here, Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He models it on the cross. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Verse 13, deliver. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And right here, some of us may say, well, I don't really deal with temptation. Well, that puts you better than Jesus. Jesus himself was tempted in every way known to humanity. That's what the scriptures say of Jesus. He was tempted in every way. Every way. And therefore, Jesus understands our temptation. So therefore, temptation sometimes makes us get real quiet with our prayer life. You ever been through that one before? Suffering through your temptation, even making perhaps poor choices regarding that temptation, and man, how distant we become with God. That's not God's fault. G.K. Chesterton, when asked when we should pray, he says, there are two times we should pray. We should pray when we feel like it and when we don't. It's funny. Man, it's true, too. I would say it like this. There are probably two times that you might be dealing with temptation. The time when you feel it and the time when you don't. Deliver us from the evil one. Now, now here, let me just say this. We're not talking about devil with horns and red tights and whatever caricature of that, you know, hellmeister or whatever. Yeah, I mean, spiritual forces of evil are real. The real. And evil is more subtle and dangerous than we ever even imagined. And becoming a Christian doesn't sequester all of that. You may have heard that answer before, but it's not biblical. We are very prone to wonder. Remember Psalm 23? When we were looking at the Psalms. Psalm 23, there's this beautiful language of, of, of a shepherd. That's who Jesus is. And guess who we get depicted as? Sheep. It's tender. It's not altogether a compliment, though. We're sheep. We go astray. We need a shepherd. We're prone to wonder. Or in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, meaning to this world that we live in, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Peter's honest. That's why Jesus embeds this line in the prayer. Jesus knows that you and I will be tempted. What do we do? Jesus is offering a prayer right here prior to the temptation even coming and most certainly in the midst of the temptation. 
but even prior. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Well, in conclusion, lunatic, liar, or Lord? Matthew, as well as all the other writers, scriptures giving us those options, a choice. Thinking through this Lord who is God come to us in the flesh. And no, we don't understand that. Let's pray right now. I invite you to pray aloud this model prayer. Uh, You can pray along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.